a copy of the Bible with you or you want to use the one in the seat back in front of you or under the chair at the West Campus, I want you to turn with me to the book of Jonah. If you're not familiar with where Jonah is, it's in the Old Testament, toward the end of the Old Testament. It's between Obadiah and Micah. It's also surrounded by a bunch of people's names that sound a lot like Star Wars characters, okay? So it might be unfamiliar to you, but use the table of contents, whatever you need to do. Uh, look on your device. Turn with me to the book of Jonah. The next four weeks, we're going to be looking at just a, a peek into this man's life and try to discover like what we can learn in our world today that would really help us walk with God. And as many of you know, I mean, the story of Jonah is a big fish tale, right? That reminds me of how I spent the 4th of July when I was 10 years old. Uh, we went up to northeastern Ohio where my grandparents lived, Grandma and Grandpa Heller. And my grandpa was so excited to take me fishing because he'd been watching an infomercial and they had this new uh, fishing pole that was like 18 inches long. And, and he was so excited to use that for the first time. So he took me to Lake Ann and he was so excited. He reeled back to take that first cast and he hooked a runner that was running behind him on a path on her shirt. And he's like yanking as hard as he could on this new pole and this lady's shirt is just, you know, just pulling. It took us about an hour to get that hook out of her shirt. And by the end of that hour, as a 10 year old, I was done. I was just ready to go home. I was not motivated to fish anymore. So we got back in the car. We were supposed to go back to Lake Ann to watch fireworks that night over the lake. But my grandpa was so embarrassed about what he had done that morning that we didn't go back. He didn't want anybody to recognize him as that you know, fisherman who caught a runner with his new pole. Like the story of Jonah is much more about a man than a fish. And so I want you to look with me, Jonah chapter one, verse one. Let's just pick it up right at the very beginning. It says, the word the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah was a man that God spoke to. There's no record of just how he spoke to Jonah, but it just says that he did. That God did indeed speak to him and gave him a message. Hebrews 11, chapter one says that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Jonah chapter one is not the first mention of this guy, Jonah. Actually, 2 Kings chapter 14 mentions Jonah the prophet who was given a message from God to go and take to King Jeroboam II, who was the current king of Israel. And the Bible says that King Jeroboam did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so God spoke to Jonah and said, I want you to go tell King Jeroboam II what's about to happen to him. That's significant because it's exactly what's happening in this moment, Jonah chapter one. God has a message he wants to send and he pokes Jonah on the shoulder and says, I want you to take this message. Well, let's look, see what he says. He says, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. God gives Jonah a direct instruction and a specific message. Nineveh was a great city. It was great in size and great in wickedness. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian kingdom. And at that time it had 600,000 uh, population. It was 
80 miles in circumference. In fact, in Jonah chapter four, when Jonah actually does go to Nineveh, it says it took him three days to walk from one edge of the city to the opposite end of the city. Historians say that the walls of Nineveh were so wide that three chariots could race on top of the wall. Nineveh was known for its size, but it was also known for its evilness. They were cruel people in Nineveh. So cruel that when they captured a, an army, they would take their prisoners live and they would skin them, like skin them alive. That's where that phrase might have come from. They would take the skins, the flesh of those people they had conquered and hang them on the walls around Nineveh. And then they would take those people who they had skinned alive and they would bury them in the sand up to their neck and they would pull out their tongue and put a stake in it. My friends, that's cruel, right? I think we could all agree that is not really nice to do. Also, Nineveh was the center of fertility cult worship, which meant that the women of Nineveh were cruelly victimized. Nineveh also was the arch enemy of their geographic neighbor to the south, the nation of Israel, God's people. The greatness of Nineveh was known throughout the ancient world. It was known to Jonah and it was also known to God. And God has a message of warning to send to the people of Nineveh and he calls Jonah to the task to deliver the message. All of us are probably familiar from the flannel graph lessons we learned as a kid in Sunday school or VBS exactly what Jonah does next. It says here that Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee the Lord. Geographically, Jonah went to the part furthest away from Nineveh. He was 1,500 miles away at the extremity across the Mediterranean of where Nineveh was to Tarshish. Spiritually, as a man of faith and as a prophet of God, Jonah knew that there was nowhere he could go to escape the presence of the Lord. He was just trying to run away fast. He was familiar with David's words that are recorded in the Psalm. In fact, Psalm 139 says this in verse um, seven. Where can I go from your spirit, David says? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. William J. Banks says, attempting to run from God is like fleeing light and falling into darkness, relinquishing wealth and welcoming poverty, abandoning joy and receiving sorrow, giving up peace in order to have chaos and confusion. It begs the question, why did Jonah run from God? Well, we could say that it was because of the Ninevites. Remember, they were cruel people and he knew the, the brutality of what Ninevites did to people they opposed or who opposed them. But most people actually believe the reason Jonah didn't go is because of prejudice. Jonah's love for God and his love for Israel caused him to hate others. 
And he hated the Ninevites so much that he wanted nothing to do with them being spared. He wanted the full wrath of God to be dumped upon them. You could say that Jonah was kind of a precursor to a man we meet in the New Testament named Saul, whose love for God and his love for the law caused him to persecute, even kill those who were following this guy named Jesus. Jonah in chapter four confesses that the reason he didn't obey God the first time is because he didn't want the people of Nineveh to be spared. So he ran in the opposite direction. Just like the prodigal son paid for his wild living in a foreign land, just like Judas bought a hangman's noose to end his life, Jonah pays the fare and he boards the ship of disobedience. The convenience of a boat waiting does not sanctify the choice that Jonah made in the moment. In fact, Satan always provides transportation for a soul that's running from God. It reminds me of a friend of mine who got both of his ears pierced. And when he showed up for work one day with both of his ears pierced, I said, Josh, why why did you get both of your ears pierced? And he just looked at me very quickly and said, it was God's will. So it begged a few more questions like, Josh, how do you know it was God's will for you to get both of your ears pierced? He said, well, when I went to Eastland Mall and went to Claire's to get it done, there was a front row parking spot right in front of the entrance that goes into Claire's. He said, it only took me four trips around the parking lot to find that open spot. Jonah was looking for an open spot and he took it. He boarded the ship and he fled. Spurgeon says this, evil also has its mysterious providences. It's not always right to do what seems convenient. And Jonah soon found out how God felt about his disobedience. Look what it says in Jonah chapter one, verse four. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. You can't outrun God's presence, nor his sovereignty. He's in control of all the forces of nature, and he will use anything at his disposal to point us toward accomplishing his purposes. God wanted to offer the people of Nineveh the chance to repent, and he chose Jonah to go and deliver that message, but Jonah disobeyed. The people on the boat with Jonah, they were experienced sailors, but they were frightened so much they started emptying the ship of all of its cargo and they got really religious fast. They started begging and praying to their God, to any God who would save them from their present calamity. Jonah, he's in the bottom of the ship asleep. Please don't mistake his ability to rest during this calamity as a sign of a clear conscience. Because Satan told Adam and Eve, go ahead and eat the fruit. It'll be okay. God didn't really mean what he said. I mean, David thought he had got away with murder and adultery until the prophet Nathan shows up. The ship on the, uh, the captain of the ship where Jonah found himself goes down to the bottom and wakes Jonah and says, hey, start praying to your God. Maybe he'll save us. Look what the sailors did. The sailors said to each other, Come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? 
And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. God works in mysterious ways and the lot indicated that Jonah was the one to blame for the present calamity. I applaud Jonah's response. It reminds me a lot of David's response when confronted by the prophet Nathan. Jonah says, I'm the man. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. It will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. I'm captured by the irony of this moment. Here you have Jonah, a man of God, the prophet of God, who is running so far away from what God had asked him to do because he doesn't want to show compassion or mercy on the Ninevites. Contrasted by the sailors who are fearful of their life, they're trying to do everything they can to spare Jonah and to avoid this disaster. Instead of throwing him overboard, like he asked them, look what they did instead. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And so they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. They reluctantly tossed Jonah into the turbulent sea and they saw three miracles happen. The first, the sea calmed. Second, revival broke out. And third, a big fish came and swallowed Jonah. God is not distant even in our disobedience and his sovereignty can calm storms. It can bring about revival and God will go to great lengths and depths to bring us to repentance. There are multiple takeaways from just the very first chapter of Jonah. And the first one is this, God still speaks. As God spoke to Jonah, he still speaks to us today. Henry Blackaby in his classic work, Experiencing God, says this, that God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit, through the Bible, through prayer, through circumstances, and through others to reveal himself, his ways, and his purposes to us. So let's just unpack these ways that God speaks to us today. First of all, God speaks to us through his word, the Bible. God wants to reveal to us his character and he wants to guide us. And he, so he's spoken to us through the revelation of his heart and his will. His word is trustworthy. Listen to what Psalm 12, 6 says, the word of the Lord are flawless. They're like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. There's a beautiful picture recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, if you want to flip over there. Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is a moment where Moses is bringing the written word of God down from the mountain. It's been written on, on stone tablets. Aren't you glad you don't have to pack two stone tablets with you today, right? You can use your phone or a little leather-bound book. But, but Moses is bringing down, the, down these two stone tablets. And as he reads the word of the Lord to the people of Israel, he follows up by saying this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. 
It is not up in the heavens so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we can obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you may obey it. Moses brought God's word to the people. God's word is accessible. He's speaking to us through it. That's why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for all good work. It's dumbfounding to me then when I sit around and hear Christians ask questions like, I really just want to know what God's plan is for my life. I really wish God would speak to me. If you are asking those questions today, let me bring you good news. He has spoken. He is speaking. He's revealed his heart, his ways, his character to us through his word. We don't have to wonder. All we need to do is commit to reading God's word, to study it, to listen I would encourage you to have a pen ready when you do read God's word every day because he wants to say something to you. Write it down, reflect on it, and most importantly, obey it. God speaks to us through his word, but he also speaks to us through prayer. Prayer is a conversation. It's not a monologue. It includes speaking, but it also includes listening. I was so grateful to have Greg Pruitt here last week, and I loved his teaching on spiritual warfare in our weekend services. I also really enjoyed his his, uh, seminar on prayer on Friday night. And as you know, Greg's written a book called Extreme Prayer about how we express ourselves to God. But he's also equally convicted about how we can have extraordinary listening because conversation is what prayer is about. We are speaking to God, but God is also speaking to us. And I wrote down something that Greg said that God might be invisible, but he's not distant, nor is he silent. Prayer is a two-way conversation. What God has to say to us in prayer is way more important than anything we could ever say to God in prayer. And prayer's purpose is not to align God's will to us, but us to God's will. That's why Jesus taught us to pray by saying, not my will, but yours be done. God has given us the Holy Spirit to help us hear from his word, but he also helps us when we pray. In John chapter 16, it's smack dab in the middle of a a large portion of the gospel of John, of, of John recording Jesus' words before he goes back to heaven. And he's given final instructions to his followers. And so in John chapter 15 and 16, he starts to unpack what the role of the Holy Spirit is. Listen to what Jesus says, John 15, verse 26. So when the advocate comes, this advocate he's referring to is the Holy Spirit. An advocate is somebody who speaks on behalf of a person or in defense of a person. He says, when the advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must also testify for you've been with me from the beginning. Later in chapter 16, verse seven, he says this, very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, Jesus says, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. 
And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus says in verse 12, I have so much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the father is mine. And that's why I said the spirit will receive from me what he makes known to you. Jesus says the role of the Holy Spirit is to counsel us. It's to guide us, to teach us, to convict us. It's to listen to us and also to speak for us. He will intercede, which requires both. I think that's why Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter eight. He says, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our heart knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. God listens to us when we pray but he also speaks to us to reveal his heart and his ways through the working of the Holy Spirit. God speaks to us through circumstances. God's sovereignty is not about being a puppet master. His ways are perfect and they are good for us. We can trust him and we can trace his hand in our lives. We don't define God by our circumstances, but yet we recognize God's activity by what he's doing in us and through us. I believe Jesus provided a great model for us to follow when thinking about looking for what God is up to. He said to the Pharisees when they accused him of breaking the law by healing someone on the Sabbath, these words, he says, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working, Jesus says. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. When we know God's heart, we can sense his presence and we can respond to his invitation to join him. When he speaks to us through his word and through prayer, when we see what he's doing in the world around us, we can lean into what he's up to. We can discern the promptings from God to act or to turn away from evil. Several years ago, I had furniture disease, which means my chest was falling into my drawers, if you know what I mean. And I decided I needed to do some exercise. So I chose running. I chose running. It's something that's fun for me. It's a choice. And so I had to learn how to run, which meant I had to get the right shoes. I had to work on breathing. I had to work on pace. And so I was starting to get the hang of it. And I'd started running about two to three miles, hopefully three to four times a week. And, and it really brought me a lot of joy. It still does. I remember one on an early run, I was, I was out running through some neighborhoods near my home. And, and as I was making my way through the streets, I saw in front of me this crumpled up water bottle and I just ran on by it and kept cruising. And literally I was about five paces past that water bottle. I didn't hear an audible voice, but a very strong impression I felt from the Lord that says, Phil, go back and pick up the water bottle. 
And so I had a conversation with God and it went something like this. Uh, excuse me, God, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm trying to get some exercise here. I'm trying to run to, you know, take good care of the temple that you've given me to, to host your presence. And so like, I'm kind of busy right now, not doing litter patrol. I'm trying to exercise to which he responded, Phil, go back and pick up the water bottle. I started down the same conversation, but I just decided you shouldn't argue with God. So I just turned around, kind of kicking the pavement as I went and picked up the water bottle, stuck it in my pocket and continued on my way. About a half mile later, there was some more trash in the road and the same prompting, not an audible voice, but a clear message I felt from the Lord, Phil, bend down and pick up that trash. And so this time without the argument, I just picked up the trash. And that actually started just kind of something I do on my run. In fact, I was running through my neighborhood not much longer after that. And as I ran toward my house, I saw this something like glittering in the road. And as I got closer, I noticed it was a glass bottle laying in the middle of the road. So prompted by the Lord and also being a good citizen, I picked up that bottle. When I did, I noticed it was a large bottle of absolute vodka. And there I am running through my neighborhood, <laughs> known as the pastor at the local church. And as only fate would have it, my neighbor is sitting on her front porch waiting for the kids to get off the bus, watching all this go down, right? And she just simply said to me, hitting a little early this morning, aren't you, pastor? It's just like, I just didn't know what to say. I just walked in through the trash can and went inside quickly, right? I wish I could tell you that I've grown up and like there's not any more arguing with the Lord. Like when he prompts me to do something, I say, yes, Lord, and just do it. But a couple years ago, after returning from an Africa mission trip, I had a great opportunity to serve the Lord for two weeks. I arrived home at midnight 30 and the next morning at 8 a.m., I showed up at my son's school to go on a two-day overnight field trip with him and 150 fifth graders. That's not exactly how I thought my re-entry into the mainland would be. And so I just kind of made a mental agreement with myself that I was gonna show up right on time I was going to put my luggage on the bus and then I was going to slip into my own car and just drive up two hours by myself just to have a little me time, a little maybe detox and maybe an opportunity to return some phone calls. Right. And as I put my luggage on the bus that day, I, I didn't hear an audible voice, but I felt a real prompting to from the Lord that said, ask Michael's dad to ride with you. And again, I had this conversation with God, God. I'm worn out. I just got back from serving you for two weeks in Africa. Can I get a break on this one? Like, I just want to ride by myself. I just want to have some me time. Just listen to some music. Just return some phone calls. Can I just do that? And he responded, ask Michael's dad to ride with you. And I turned and I walked back to my car as fast as I could, trying not to make eye contact with Michael's dad or anybody. I shut the door and I drove right to the gas station because I needed some gas to make the trip. And so I'm just pumping my gas, minding my own business, trying to distract myself. And when I turned around and looked, guess who was pumping gas next to me? Michael's dad, right? And I said, okay, Lord, I get it, okay? You want me to invite Michael's dad to ride with me? So I left my pump and I went over and I said, hey, I saw you at the school. Are you going on the field trip today? He said, yeah. I said, well, I'm Phil. He said, hey, I'm you know, Jim, whatever his name was. And I said, you know, I was wondering, would you just want to ride with me up to the field trip? There's no sense of us both driving separately. He said, no, thanks, that's okay. Um, thanks for the offer. Turned and got in his vehicle. 
And I made the walk of shame back to my own vehicle, realizing that maybe that was a moment like Esther for such a time as this, God was tapping me on the shoulder just to offer someone I'd never met a ride. And I blew it. You see, God is speaking to us. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through prayer. He speaks to us through circumstances. And one of the reasons I want to say yes when it's trash in my path on a run is because I don't want to say no when it's something more significant, like Michael's dad. I don't know where he's at in faith. Or when he prompts me to leave a place that I served for 13 years and take on a new assignment. I don't want to miss those moments either. So I want to learn to say yes when it's trash so I can say yes when God asks what's next. And if I never run the first half mile, I'll never run a marathon. God is speaking to us. He wants us to say yes. I think that's why in 1 John chapter 1, it says these words. Listen to this, 1 John chapter 1 Verse five, this is the message that we've heard from God and declare to you, God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son, Jesus purifies us from all sin. I think that's what it looks like to walk with God to have fellowship with him because we're walking in the same way. We're walking in the truth. We're walking with him. We learn his heart. We participate in what he's doing in our life and through our life. God also speaks to us through others. We need to be teachable and discerning. More than any other generation that has existed up to this point, we have more opportunity to hear from God through others. We have books, we have versions of the Bible, we have podcasts, we have apps, we have study resources. The internet has opened up a a plethora of opportunities to understand God and his ways. But with all that access requires us to engage our brain. This might be a newsflash for some of you, but not everything that you read on the internet is true. Not everything that someone would say say from a stage like this is true. Not everything you might sing in a song or read in a book is true. And that's why you have to engage your brain as you listen to God's word through others. I love what's described about the Bereans in Acts 17. Listen to what it says. The Berean Jews were one of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed. I would encourage you to bring your Bible with you or to listen intently to anything that's said from this stage, whether it's from me or anyone, to make sure it's actually God's word and true. Engage your brain as you listen for God through others. There's a second takeaway this morning, and that takeaway is this. We have a choice to obey or not. I don't know why God gave Adam and Eve free will. If I was talented enough to make a robot, and as soon as that thing came to life, it kicked me in the shin, I would disconnect the wires and not put batteries back in the thing, right? I'm I'm not dumb, just slow. But it doesn't take a quick thing to realize that I wouldn't let that thing continue to treat me the way it wants to. God spoke to 
Jonah, and he immediately disobeyed. He ran the other way. Hearing God's word still requires a response, and God's given us a choice in the matter. It's interesting to me what Moses said immediately after talking about God's word being near to people. Listen back in Deuteronomy 30, what he says next. Moses says, see today, I set before you life and prosperity, death and destruction. I command you today to love the Lord your God with, and walk in obedience with him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Moses says, this day, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so that your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus made many an invitation for people to follow him. And some people said yes, some people said no. Some people said yes and they started and then they turned around and went back. Obedience draws us to the heart of God and disobedience causes distance between ourselves and God. Notice Jonah didn't, he tried to flee from God's presence. It doesn't say that God left him. J.D. Greer says this, you are never farther from God than when you think you're close to him, but you say no. Disobeying is an option, but you need to understand that Jonah teaches us a powerful reminder, and that's the third takeaway, disobedience has consequences. Jonah not only paid his fare for the ship, he paid for taking the ship. James Burton Kaufman says, whatever soul turns away from the Lord always finds there's a price exacted. This is not legalism, my friends. It's a real eternal principle that what you sow, you will reap. This is what Paul tells the Galatians. He says this, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Jonah not only put himself in a dangerous situation by his disobedience, he also endangered many others. Breaking the law, whether it's societal law, natural law, spiritual law, can hurt others. Drunk driving kills. Sexual promiscuity spreads disease. Pride will foster dysfunction in any relationship. What we as parents excuse in moderation often manifests itself in excess in our children. And when we rationalize our sin, the world sees a very dim light of Christ. There are ramifications to our disobedience. The Great Divorce was written by C.S. Lewis. And he describes two different types of people. The first group are people who are running away from God. And he describes them as see-through, transparent, almost weak, lifeless. And then he describes those people who are running toward God or walking with God. And they're solid. They're full of light. 
They're strong. They're more alive, more human, more who God has created us to be. Our obedience bears fruit in our life and in the lives of others. Our disobedience causes pain for us and others. The fourth takeaway is this. God is always gracious. While the consequences of our disobedience are real, God's character is not complete to just view him as this judgmental God full of wrath and punishment. That's how many people view God. Maybe some of you are here today and that's the only picture you have of God. But I think if you don't look carefully, you'll miss a view of God that's represented in the book of Jonah that's true of him as well. Remember, God's original message that he wanted Jonah to take to Nineveh was repent so that you wouldn't be destroyed. He didn't want to bring his wrath. He was trying to warn them. When Jonah disobeyed, God sent a storm to save him. He sent sailors to protect him. He even allowed a big fish to swallow him. Look what Jonah chapter one, verse 17 says, the Lord provided a huge fish so they would swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The King James Version made a terrible mistranslation in Matthew chapter 12 when it was describing what happened to Jonah. It actually used the word whale, but the original word actually just means big fish. It reminds me of a young girl who was fighting with her teacher at school about the possibility of a fish being able to swallow a human. And the reason that the girl was so dogged is because she believed that the Bible is true. And she believed what happened to Jonah was proof that a big fish could actually swallow a human being. And the teacher, not being a believer, debated this with her. Finally, the girl just kind of just frustrated said, okay, fine. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah how it happened. And the teacher said, well, what if Jonah didn't go to heaven? And so the girl said back to her teacher, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> you see, I believe with all my heart that God's grace is evident all throughout the story, the book, the life of Jonah. You see, the storm, it wasn't designed for retribution. It was designed for restoration. The sailors were trying to help Jonah. The fish was sent to rescue Jonah from the deep sea. And the picture we have is that Jonah understood God's salvation and his graciousness because in Jonah chapter two, he offers a prayer of thanksgiving for being swallowed by this big fish. Listen to his words. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, even to the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers, they swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me and deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought me up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and, I, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. 
What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Just like the prodigal son, no matter how far or how long you've been running, God's forgiveness is there for you. It's never too late to turn back to God and receive his love and forgiveness. That's why the prophet Joel says these words. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He abounds in love and he relents from sending calamity. The bottom line from Jonah chapter one is this. God is speaking. We must listen and obey. If you're here today and you want to know what God's heart is, you want to know, you want him to speak to you, be encouraged. God has spoken to you already. He's given us his word so that we would understand his heart, his character, his ways. We can trust him. We can learn about him and we can follow his ways and walk in them. They lead to rest for our souls. He will guide our steps. Walk with him. Listen to the Holy Spirit as he prompts you to join in the activity of what God is doing in your life and what he wants to do through your life in the world around him. Listen and obey. And if you're here today and you've been running from God, trying to avoid what he wants for your life, know that God's plan for you is perfect. He wants what is good for you. His plans are to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. Know that God's plans for you can be trusted. And also understand what the real definition of a Christian is. Look at what C.S. Lewis says. He says, a Christian is not a man who never goes wrong or disobeys, but instead it's a man who's enabled to repent and picks himself up and begins again over and over after each stumble because the Christ life inside him is repairing him all the time. Throw yourself into the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. I don't deserve it. I couldn't earn it, yet God still gives himself away so that we could be forgiven. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for including the life of Jonah in Scripture because I can relate to a person like him who doesn't always say yes. That when I hear your voice, God, sometimes I'm tempted and I follow through on running in the opposite direction. And God, I don't want to run anymore. God, you are speaking. Your word is available and ready, accessible to us, God. You speak to us through your word, through prayer, through your spirit, through circumstances, God, through others. Lord, help us to have ears that hear. And also, God, help us to respond with a yes, Lord. God, we don't want to miss what you are up to in our life. We don't want to miss out on what you want to do through us, God. And so, God, would you help us to hear and would you help us to obey? God, I pray the result of that would be glory and praise to you that you would change this church, this world for your glory and for your purposes by us saying yes to your word. I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.